This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This morning, we will continue to consider the Apostle Paul's admonition to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been called in Jesus Christ. It's especially important as we continue our walk through chapter 4, and specifically this morning, verses 17 through 32, it's important to not forget that this Ephesian letter is one letter. Of the first three chapters, act as a foundation upon which Paul's ethical exhortations are built in the last three chapters. So you may remember that Paul, that he starts his letter in chapter 1 and chapter 2 with these grand and great theological truths. And they act as a foundation that are laid. And for Paul and for us, this theological foundation should result in doxological praise. Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 leads directly to Ephesians chapter 3, and specifically verses 20 through 21. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and forever. Amen. So brothers and sisters, as we consider our Christian duty in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 and 6, we should be reminded that our duty is to be driven by doxology. Our Christian duty is to be driven by doxology. The theology of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 results in doxology that results in our duty, our obedience to God. So never forget that duty is to be driven by doxology. And so now we turn our attention to the therefores of chapter 4. Paul pivots from Ephesians chapter 3, and he starts Ephesians chapter 4 with a therefore, and we considered that last time. And he includes another therefore in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, and we're going to consider that today. So now hear God's word in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger 
and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. May God bless the reading of his word. We'll consider Ephesians chapter 4, these verses that we have read under three sections this morning. And so if you're taking notes, these will be the three sections of the sermon. First, the old way. The old way, verses 17 through 19. Secondly, the new way. The new way, verses 20 through 24. And third, walk this way. Walk this way, verses 25 through 32. The first two sections, verses 17 through 24, detail for us, in stark contrast, the old way and the new way, the old self and the new self, the way of sin and the way of a Savior. Friend, there are only two ways to live. There are only two paths to walk, the path of sin and the path of the Savior. The path of sin that leads to death and hell, and the path of a Savior that leads to life and joy and pleasures forevermore. And so I implore you this morning, I implore you on behalf of Jesus Christ, walk in the way of Christ. Walk in the new way. And so verses 25 through 32 Detail for us, they give us specific ethical exhortations as we walk in the new way, as we walk in the way of Jesus Christ, and as we walk in the path of everlasting life. Well, this will be the sermon outline for today. I think we should pause and ask God to be with us as we consider his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what we know not, teach us. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see the wonder of your word. What we have not, give us. If we have not faith this morning, send your Holy Spirit to grant repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ even now. If we have faith, fill us with your spirit, O God, so that we may walk more faithfully in your way. And God, what we are not, make us. Conform us to the image of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and had given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, in these verses... The unbelieving life, or what Paul here calls the Gentile life. And I think it's important for us to to note that Paul says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul is not writing to Jews in Ephesus. He's writing to Gentiles in Ephesus. And he's telling them to no longer walk as the Gentiles. And I think that's important because it's, it's a reminder for us that there are only two ways to walk. There's the way of unbelief, the way of the Gentiles, and there's the way of of a new covenant community, the way of Jesus Christ, this this way that leads to life. But in these verses before us, the unbelieving life, the sinful life, it's characterized as darkened and alienated, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, sensual, greedily impure. And I wonder this morning if we feel the weight of the sinfulness of sin. If we feel the weight of the sin that has so easily entangled us in our natural conditions, each one of us born in sin. I fear that we downplay sin. We don't think of those as unbelievers being callous, darkened, futile in their minds. That's what Paul says. That's how Paul characterizes it. Paul goes on to contrast this kind of life with the new life in Jesus Christ, a life that's renewed and recreated, righteous and holy. And so to steal language from earlier in the letter, Paul here is contrasting the life that's dead in trespasses and sins with the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And so we're confronted again with the reality that the natural man is in a most unfortunate state. Every person must be confronted with their separation from Almighty God because of their sinful rebellion. Every person must acknowledge the futility of life, all of life, apart from the purposeful God who before the foundation of the world wrote the story of redemption into the very fabric of the universe. So in these verses, Paul specifically, he addresses the futility of the mind apart from God. In verse 17, did you see that in verse 17? Paul says that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul describes the unbelieving mind as so distorted that it is marked by futility. It has fallen to folly. And so in the New Testament, futility, it denotes the emptiness of human endeavors which seek to bring lasting satisfaction. And how can we testify so often in our sinful passions? We seek lasting satisfaction in any number of things, in people, in profits, in, in power, in, and, in, and in the pleasure that comes in our sin. We exchange the glory of God for worthless idols. Our souls need firm foundation. Yet we build on the futile sinking sands. 
So it's noteworthy that the Apostle Paul here so heavily emphasizes the mental dimension of the human estrangement from God. Not only is the unbeliever futile in mind, but such futility leads to a darkened understanding of reality. Verse 18. So one commentator said that because the unbeliever lacks a reconciled relationship with God, the unbeliever's mind suffers from the consequences of having lost touch with reality. They are left fumbling around with inane trivialities. And friend, we know this to be true. Time would fail to speak of culture after culture and society after society and person after person, even you, who testify to the truth that man apart from God is tossed to and fro, fumbling with inane trivialities and much worse, committing unspeakable atrocities. And so is it really surprising that the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 22, verse 37, that the first and greatest commandment includes the love of God with our minds? Jesus, and Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, your sin and rebellion against God, your lack of love for God, is and will make you lose your mind. The mind is no neutral thing. The mind is a human faculty that can be dominated either by sin or by God. And so like the mouth may be used to curse and the eyes used to lust and the hand used to strike, so the mind may even be used to supposedly reason away the very maker of the mind. You know, human beings are so skillful in exercising our wicked reasoning faculty that some have even reasoned themselves into non-existence or reasoned themselves into situations where it clearly is not in line with reality. And this disconnect with reality, this ignorance, Paul says, This ignorance ultimately leads to an alienation from the life of God. Such ignorance is rooted in a failure to be thankful, to be thankful and obedient to God's gracious work of creation and even more so his redemptive work in Jesus Christ. This ignorance describes someone's total stance, their posture towards God, their emotions and their wills and their acts, not, not solely one's mental response. To be ignorant of God is to, be per, is to purposely ignore him as he speaks through his world and in his word, and ultimately to ignore God in the person of Jesus Christ. To be ignorant of God and alienated from the life of God is to be a son of disobedience under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. The kingdom of this world has rule over them, Paul says. Does it have rule over you? Friend, is this you? Do you see yourself in this Gentile? The culpability, the responsibility for this futility, this ignorance, this alienation is to be found in them, Paul says. 
It's to be found in you due to your hardness of heart. The ignorance and hardness of heart that results in the futility of the mind is a stubborn, willful, culpable, deliberate refusal of the moral light available to man in your own conscience and in the world, and especially in the Word of God. So friends, you may... You may be here this morning and you may be like the Apostle Paul before his conversion. Confident, educated, successful, and deeply proud. Do you see that even the Apostle Paul here describes himself prior to his conversion as futile, ignorant, alienated? You may be here this morning and you may have intellectual reasons why you do not believe in a God or, or, or at least the God of Christianity. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know why you're here. You're indifferent to the claims of the gospel. You don't know why you're here. No matter your situation, Paul has clearly described what it means to be a man and a woman apart from Jesus Christ. And so I stand before you this morning and plead with you to set aside your futile thinking. Set aside your futile thinking. No longer be darkened in your understanding. No longer be alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in you due to your hardness of heart. Friend, you need to know that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And you need to know that God has made a way. God has made provision for anyone who would put off the old life and put on Jesus Christ. As a resurrected man myself, I urge you to take hold by faith of Jesus Christ. His righteous life for your righteous life. His death on the cross for your death on the cross. And his resurrection from the dead as your resurrection from the dead. Friend, you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And in Jesus Christ, you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You can be found in Jesus Christ today and secure in Christ for all eternity. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But for those who persist in their hardness of heart, you need to know that the fleeting and hollow and deceitful pleasures of this life are your reward. Paul tells us in verse 19, they have become callous, and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The sensuality or the debauchery, the the greed and the impurity here mentioned by Paul is best articulated in the moral delinquency that's described in detail in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1. Sensuality, according to Galatians 5.19, is one of the works of the flesh. It's a vice which throws off all restraint. It flaunts itself. It's unashamed. It's without regard for self-respect or for public decency. It is impurity characterized by riotous and shameful sexual deviancy, all the while taking great pride, taking great pride, in their shameful sexual acts. And Paul says the callous man is greedy 
to practice this lifestyle. Characterized by an insatiable desire to participate in more and more forms of immorality. To click one more pornographic image. To indulge in one more fling of fornication. To add one more letter to the L and the G and the B and the T. So insatiable to put a plus sign. Greedy to practice impurity. For the one who persists in this hardness of heart, Paul says there is a corresponding progression in their inability of the conscience to convict you. So in Romans 2.15, Paul tells us that the conscience serves as a witness to the law of God implanted in our hearts. Habitually ignoring and going against conscience, it results in a moral callous on your soul. And that callous renders you incapable of feeling the sting of sin or the coming judgment of God. And even worse than that, as, as, as terrible as that is, even worse than that, the callous man knows not the overwhelming joy, the overwhelming joy of a burden lifted from the once condemned conscience of a man who has encountered the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ. The callous man knows not the joy and the satisfaction of seeing and tasting that the Lord, the Lord, he is good. The callous man knows not the joy or the freedom of forgiveness. Wrought by an all-sufficient Savior who will never leave you and never forsake you. The callous man knows not the joy or the hope of being a new creation in Jesus Christ, already experiencing a foretaste of glory divine and eagerly longing for the full consummation of that day when we will see him as he really is. That day when we will be like him, glorious in holiness. That day when the kingdom of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and we and he shall reign forever. In stark contrast to the callous man and the old way, it's as if the Apostle Paul takes his hands and he cups our face, Christian, and he looks us in the face and he says, this is not the way you learned Christ. This is not the way that you learned Christ. In verse 20, Paul pivots from the way of man apart from Christ, from the callous man, the old man, for the Christian, the old self. And he begins to describe for us the redeemed and recreated and forgiven new life of the believer in Jesus Christ, the new way in Jesus Christ. So note first in verse 20 that the content of the believer's new life is Jesus Christ. 
He is our life. But this is not the way you learned Christ, Paul says. Not learned about Christ or learned from Christ, but this is not the way that you learned Christ. The truth is in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 21. So Peter O'Brien says that learning Christ means to welcome him. To welcome him as a living person, being shaped by his teachings. And this involves submitting to him. Uh, submitting to his rule of righteousness and responding to his summons to standards that you did not know before. So in fact, the Christian, the Christian knows that the old self belongs to the former manner of life. We were the callous man, brothers and sisters, but no longer in Jesus Christ. We have heard Jesus Christ. We are taught the truth that is in Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is our life. And so what exactly does Paul mean when he says the truth is in Christ? Well, he means everything in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. He means everything in Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. It's the promise of God in Genesis 3.15 that God would send a baby boy to make all sad things come untrue. It's the promise of God to Noah that he would never again flood the earth but sustain it so that the promise of God to Abraham would go forth and all the nations would be blessed through him. It's the promise of God to Moses that a mediator would come to obey the law of God and yet be a final sacrifice for our sins unto God. It's the promise of God to David that the son of David would rule from David's throne forever. And it's the promise of a new covenant where the hard and calloused heart would be replaced by a tender-hearted heart, a tender heart, a kind heart, empowered by the Spirit of God to obedience. It's all of the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We learn the way of Christ when we hear and obey Jesus who said, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We hear Jesus Christ say, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. And this is my body, which is given for you. And we learn Christ whenever we hear the Apostle Paul remind us, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. Of the gospel that I preached to you, in which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. The gospel that says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. This is the truth that we have learned, the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And this truth changes everything. The truth that is in Jesus renews the spirit of our minds, We perceive through gospel lenses the wretchedness of our fallen estate and the terrible beauty of the holiness of God. We perceive the greatest need of man is a divine rescue mission from the ultimate fighting champion. We perceive our need of supreme pardon and righteous imputation through the blood sacrifice of a royal redeemer. And by the grace of God, we put off our old self and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. For the new self in verse 24 is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's his life lived out by and through his saints. It's his life recreating us after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let me encourage you that you are in fact in a holy and happy estate before God, as our own confession says.
Let me also encourage you to remember that this holy and happy estate is already here, but it has not yet fully come. And so we're in quite a predicament. We've already put off the old man. We've already put on Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel has overcome the dark futility of our minds, and the spirit of our minds have been renewed. We have been declared righteous before God. We have been crucified with Christ. We've died with Christ. We've been resurrected with Christ. We are seated at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. And yet, yet, in all honesty, we do not yet live as we fully are. The outworking of this new life, it's one of great tension. Sin no longer reigns in your life, Christian. But sin does and will remain. Lord willing, less and less measure, but it does remain until we are made perfect in glory. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul turns and he starts to exhort us, brothers and sisters in Christ, he exhorts us to walk the way of Jesus Christ. And he gives us four imperatives or four commands or four exhortations, however you want to put it. He gives us four of them to drive us in growth in righteousness, holiness, and conformity to Jesus Christ. So look with me now at Ephesians 4.25 through verse 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Here Paul gives us four clear and contrasting imperatives. Four clear, contrasting imperatives, and he exhorts us to walk in this way. One, Put away falsehood and speak the truth. Put away falsehood, speak the truth. Two, put away wrath, exercise self-control. Three, put away lazy greed, be diligent and generous. Four, put away corrupting talk, speak graciously. First, in verse 25, we ought to speak the truth with our neighbor, for we are members of one another. Put away falsehood, speak the truth. Certainly, Christians should be known as honest and reliable people who can be trusted within our communities. However, here, the Apostle Paul does not seem to have in mind your next-door neighbor, but rather your brother and sister in Christ, your neighbor in the church. We are one one to, to the other. We are one another, members of one another. And so while telling the truth is certainly a good general principle, it is one of the Ten Commandments, Paul is concerned primarily with fellowship in the church. We are a people of the truth, and as the truth is in Jesus Christ, genuine fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. So brothers and sisters, lies 
lies undermine the fellowship of the church. Truth strengthens the church. So brothers and sisters, put away falsehood and speak the truth in love. And as an aside, this is why the members of University Park Baptist Church are to sustain the doctrines of our church found in our confession of faith and have no settled convictions against it. We are people of the truth, and we have agreed that what is contained in our confession of faith is a truthful summary of the truths taught in the Bible. The confession is not an exhaustive, an exhaustive statement of the truth, but it is a statement of the truth. And so members of University Park, we have covenanted together to sustain or to uphold the truth. Second, in verse 26, we're to be angry and do not sin. Put away wrath, exercise self-control. Here we have an echo of Psalm 4, verse 4, that saying from the wisdom literature that actually restricts the domain of of anger, even if at first glance it appears to maybe call for anger. We can all testify, I think, that anger has served as a conduit for some of the most grievous sins in our lives. Jesus Christ himself said to be angry at another person is to murder them. Perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul tells us to not let the sun go down on our anger, but to reconcile so that the devil has no foothold for temptation. Brothers and sisters, we have the ministry of reconciliation And so we ought to put away wrath and exercise self-control by being reconciled as quickly as we can insofar as it depends on us when there is a dispute. It does seem, however, that the text is calling for a kind of godly anger. So in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 6, we're told of the righteous anger of God that will fall upon the callous man. There must therefore be some good and true anger which God's people can learn as we are conformed to the image of Christ. The Anglican, John Stott, went so far as to say there is a great need in the contemporary world for Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. So I was talking, uh, talking about this with the elders, and uh, Stacy Kaufman uh, pointed out uh, that, that as Christians, if we're to hate what God hates, a good place to start would be to look at Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, and in particular, verses 16 through 19, where we read, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So, beloved, we can be angry at sin, and especially our own sin, but do not sin in your anger. Rather, be slow to anger, abounding in love, and exercise self-control by the grace of God. Third, in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Put away lazy greed, be diligent and generous. Do not steal, 
is the Eighth Commandment. Yet, I think that we steal in countless ways our employer's time and resources through lazy work, the generosity of friends through not returning goods, and most obviously by taking that which is not rightfully ours. Instead, Christian, you are to work diligently and honestly. Let the unbelieving world see your good deeds and glorify God. And in our diligence, it is likely, according to the Proverbs, that the Lord will provide all that we need and even more so that we can give to those in need. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be reminded to be diligent workers and that God loves a cheerful giver. So we should be generous with all, but especially to those in the household of faith. Fourth, verse 29. Put away all corrupting talk. Rather, speak graciously, building each other up. You know, I was raised uh, in 4-H and FFA. So I heard one time that cows moo and dogs bark, donkeys bray, pigs grunt. Lambs bleat and lions roar and birds sing, but only human beings can speak. So the Lord Jesus said that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the treasure, evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, Christian, you are made in God's image. You are remade in God's image, the likeness of righteousness and true holiness. You have a new heart. You have the spirit of Christ in you. Christian, speak words of life. Speak words of life. And I would remind the members of University Park Baptist Church that we have made covenant together to lovingly speak to and about one another that which edifies. Lovingly speak to and about one another that which edifies. Verse 31, Paul summarizes his previous admonitions. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And Paul reminds us that to act contrary to the Spirit, to cling backward to the old self, to walk in the old way, is to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, to disrupt fellowship in the Spirit, the Spirit that has sealed you, Christian, has marked you out for the day of redemption. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is what we're to bear in our lives. We're to keep in step with the Spirit, not grieve the Spirit. And by God's grace, let us do that. Let us keep in step with the Spirit and bear much fruit. Well, finally, Paul closes chapter 4 by rooting everything he has said in the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. We've come back to the cross. And so, Christian, as we close, let me remind you that God has acted for you in Jesus Christ. He has lived the sinless life for you. He has been crucified for you. He has been resurrected from the dead for you. He has ascended in glory and interceding for you. God has spoken truthfully to you. God does not lie or deceive. God never breaks a promise. 
God is and was angry at the sin which so easily entangles you, yet God worked on your behalf to secure redemption for you. God has worked for us so that in Christ he might graciously be generous with us and give us all things. And God has spoken graciously to all who believe. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So, beloved, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace to walk this way all the way to glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now for any person who is here and who is walking in the old way. We pray, O God, that you would save them, that you would remove their hard heart and replace it with a tender heart. You would write your law upon their heart and you would seal them by your Holy Spirit and empower them to walk in the new way. And God, we give you great praise and honor for Jesus Christ. We give you praise and honor that in Jesus Christ, The members of this church have put on the new self, Jesus Christ himself, and that you have given us the power of the Spirit at work within us to walk in the way that you have directed. So God, I pray that we would be faithful in all that we do and say and think and act on this day and tomorrow and each day until we're with you in glory. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.